This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. I don't know if uh, any of you are into basketball. I am not. There's a fact for you. I am not into basketball. I've never even watched a game. But have you ever noticed that sometimes the, the parts of something are bigger than the sum total of the whole? Think about the Beatles. The Beatles are something that is spectacular. They they've, are bigger than just about any other band that has ever walked the earth. And let if, you, if you mention the name John Lennon, he's just as recognisable as the Beatles. Well, even though I have never been into basketball... I was always kind of into the Chicago Bulls because of one name, Michael Jordan. And in my mind, as a a kid growing up in the 90s, Michael Jordan wasn't so much about basketball, but Michael Jordan was more about what represented cool. I'd never watched a game. And yet, as a kid, that team and that man had had such an influence, not only over me, but over my primary school in Logan, in Queensland. So much so that just about any of us who wanted to be cool had a Chicago Bulls hat. Well, recently I've been caught up in the craze that's been going around. I don't know if you've watched it. Uh, It's called The Last Dance. And basically it covers this period of the Chicago Bulls during Michael Jordan's uh, reign, for lack of a better word. And so it tipped my interest when Scottie Pippen, who was not the star of the show by any means, but he played alongside Michael Jordan. He was the defensive player. He's recently been speaking about Michael Jordan. And he said in his memoir, Unguarded, he said, I may go as far to say that Mike ruined the game. In the 1980s, on the playgrounds, you'd have everyone moving the ball around passing it to help the team. That stopped in the 90s. Kids wanted to play like Mike. Well, Mike didn't pass the ball. He didn't want to rebound or defend the best player. He wanted everything done for him. Now, I don't know if Scottie Pippen's right, because I never watched the game. But ultimately... Scotty Pippen could be a very jealous man because the, the show wasn't about him and he never got the wealth. He was always kind of robbed, Scotty Pippen. But he makes a point about sportsmanship. What is it about sportsmanship that makes us revile at the idea of an individual putting themselves over the team? Almost nothing is harder in sport or worse in sport than a member who thinks that a team sport is a solo sport designed to be their personal stage to shine on. Now, this kind of unfortunate individualism has snuck into many areas of life, including our Christian faith. We should all be familiar with the idea that the Christian life has an individual element and a corporate element. But we often don't think of that in regards to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a solo sport. 
Forgiveness involves at least two people. The person who needs to forgive and the person who needs to repent. But sometimes it also needs to become a team sport that involves the whole church. Now I know that this is controversial. I'm okay with being controversial because I don't have to answer to many people here today. And we all know that we need to forgive those who sin against us. That's something that everybody knows and everybody says. But what happens when we can't? What happens when we, can't, we just can't bring ourselves to forgive? Where will we turn? What do we do? Far too often we turn to pop psychology. The idea that forgiveness is about liberating the offended party of a sense of anger and bitterness. That reconciliation doesn't really matter. But what we should do is turn to Scripture. Here we learn that forgiveness in the household of faith is about recognizing that we are primarily forgiven people. The gospel teaches that we have a mountain of sin before God, but that he took the initiative to provide a way of reconciliation in Christ Jesus. That is the foundation of human forgiveness. How could we, who have been forgiven of so much, not seek out a path of reconciliation with those who have wronged us? And why would we, who recognise that personal sin taints everything that we do, also not be willing to be among the first to genuinely repent to a brother or sister when confronted with the harm that we may have caused? Genuine Christian forgiveness requires two certainties, and often, one maybe. The first certainty is that there are, the wrong party must be motivated to restore the broken relationship. And the second certainty is that a repentant party must be prepared to make restitution. And the other often is that the church must be prepared to support that process. Let's have a look at the text. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, we actually have Jesus. Jesus is the one who is speaking here. And he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is really interesting language. Uh, This is uh, the brother and sister there out of the NIV is the Greek word adelphos. And this tends to talk about the household of faith. He's talking about if somebody who is a, a fellow disciple of Jesus Christ should sin against you, the first port of call is to go to that person and bring it out into the light, no matter who it is. Now, we shouldn't miss what he's saying here. The party who has been sinned against takes the initiative and goes to the one who has committed the offence and tells them about what it is that they have done in order that they might repent. And the process is supposed to be guarded. That's intentional in the language of Jesus. Far too often there are two things that happen when people are sinned against in the church. I'm a pastor. I know it. I see it every day. The first one is that people wallow. They sit at home and say, how dare that person sin against me? Don't they know who I am? 
Don't they know how important I am? Don't they know that I have feelings? The other thing that happens is even more unfortunate. And that is we go and talk to other people. The process that Jesus here is outlying is is one of protecting both other people who are involved in this process, but also the church in a whole. We are sinful people. We are people who are inclined towards certain things. And one of the things that church people might be inclined to, to, towards that I've, I've heard is, um, is gossip. We don't do many things, but gossip is, uh, is one of those sins that church people are often inclined towards. And so Jesus is, is saying, protect that. If you're the person who's been sinned against, don't sit at home and wallow. Go to the person, take the initiative. Go to them and tell them what it is that they have done. Because there are times when people have no idea that they've sinned against you. They don't realize that the comment has hurt. They don't realize that the way in which that they were brought up and the way in which they conduct the dealings within their own household sometimes can rub other people up the wrong way. And simply in a humble and loving way of going up and, and telling that person just between you and them gives them an opportunity right there and then to repent. Brother, sister, I'm, I'm sorry. I did not mean to hurt you. This, this was the intention of my words. Now, this principle is actually based out of Leviticus 19.17. It says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so that you will not share in their guilt. So the law stands behind these comments from Jesus. So to resolve the issue between the two of you alone, perhaps solves the whole issue. Perhaps you you restore the relationship. It's back to how it was And you win that person back as a brother and as a sister in Christ. And no longer is there any tension between the two of you. But what happens if that doesn't work? That's the ideal scenario, right? What happens when that doesn't work? And you can't resolve the matter between yourselves. Jesus says, bring a friend. Bring another person or maybe two other people. A small number of trusted influential friends. This small number implies that you're, you're still not spreading this all over town. Rather, what you're doing is you're still trying to protect the other person. You hear the law? Don't hate your brother in your heart. And that way, you or the, their guilt won't cross over into you. This is one of the ways that gossip affects. They sin against you and then you sin against them by going and spreading it all over town. But oftentimes, when you have to bring a small group of friends in, you want to make sure that these are people that you can trust, that the other person can trust and will give wise advice because every now and again... What will happen is a person feels like they have been sinned against, and then they'll bring in friends who will will hear both sides of the story. And then those two wise, mature, loving, humble friends will perhaps point out that the fault lies with both parties. 
There's another law that stands behind this as well. In Deuteronomy 9.15, this is the basis, and, and it tells us that every matter should be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's what's going on here. You're still going to the friend. You're still, you're still laying bare the hurt. You're still requiring of them repentance, but now you have, you have witnesses to the account. Piece of advice. Perhaps the most suitable friends in any particular church will be the leaders of that church, the elders of that church, people who are, who are trusted by both parties and who have a vested interest involved in the protection of the sheep. The third and finally, if in the end all of that doesn't work, Jesus says, bring it to the church. The church is the final court of appeal, and, and I, I'm sorry for the Greek, but the word here is ecclesia, and this is unusual because obviously by this time, the church is not founded. Jesus is still doing so much work in the ministry. He's still founding the church. He's still preparing the church. But Jesus knew what he was going for. Jesus knew what he was doing. And Jesus knew that after he had made a way of reconciliation between God and man, that what he would leave would be this church, this assembly of people. Unlikely, this is talking about the universal church. Rather, church just means assembly. It's when, it's when people come together in the name of Jesus Christ and they, they preach the gospel. Yes, from the pulpit, but to one another. And they, they take of communion together. And they practice a thing called church discipline. Where you have good leadership, where you have responsible eldership, and these three elements, you have a church. And the church has great authority. This group of people right here in front of me is an incredibly underrated thing. And so we're to bring the matter to the church and the way that this should probably work out will, will be different in perhaps different church contexts. But with the elders involved, with these wise people involved, then you, you should have good guidance about the way in which this works. But the church is supposed to get involved in the process. And remember, the goal of each stage of this process is reconciliation. If it works out the first time, when you go to them, you win them back. If, if the friends are able to, to help you, you win them back. The church is then supposed to get involved if all else has failed. And the goal is still reconciliation. But then perhaps the most controversial thing that we will say today is ultimately, if that does not work out, then you're to treat that person like a tax collector and a heathen, an unbeliever. Now, this is not an opportunity for revenge. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, Romans 12, 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
But there are certain things that, that only members of the church have access to, right? The one at the top of my list is communion. Ultimately, when the church comes together and it says, we have done, we have seen that everything that could possibly go on in order to bring about reconciliation has not worked. This person will not repent. We know that they have committed this sin and yet they have no regard for the person they have sinned against. This is a really good sign from, from, from the decision of the church that perhaps this person is not a Christian. How could anybody who has ever experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, how could anybody who's ever wrestled with the fact that they are a sinner in need of great forgiveness ever come to a place where their heart is so hardened that they would not forgive another person and likewise would not repent? This seems to be for Jesus and one of those things, one of those ultimate examples that perhaps this person is yet to understand what it is to follow Christ as a disciple. So it's not revenge, but the other thing it's not is forbearance. I think in our modern mindset of the way in which forgiveness works, that, that really what I'm trying to do with forgiveness is I'm just trying to make myself feel better. I just want the angry feelings to go away. I just want the hurt feelings to go away. Have, have you ever heard the saying, I, look, I think there's a lot of truth in this statement, right? The statement is that, that unforgiveness is like drinking a cup of poison in the hope that the other person will die. It's true. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of truth in that statement. But I don't think that's what forgiveness is about. According to this process, forgiveness is about seeking reconciliation. It's not about your feelings. Hopefully, they'll be sorted out as well. But forbearance is something different. And I think forbearance is something that's worth mentioning in the process of forgiveness. Forbearance or long-suffering is the ability to put up with the way in which a person has sinned against you in such a way as you will not seek revenge. And you will not seek to, to hurt that person in the process. And that you will allow the good and godly process that Christ has laid out for us in Scripture to work. You can be offended without offending. You can be hurt without hurting. That's called forbearance, and it's a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. And so in application, I think in all of this, all, everything that we've just said, the main things that we want to get from this little section of Scripture is ultimately that you must seek reconciliation and forgiveness. If you're the person who's been wronged, the onus is upon you to go and seek the person out. And then in the next step, go to your elders. If that has not worked, go to your elders. Get them involved in the process and they will guide you through the rest. But ultimately, throughout all of this, reconciliation is to be your goal. I, I want to have peace with you. I want there to be peace with you and me. Now, the next statement from Jesus is often very confused as well. He says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in, my, in their midst. Great. Two or three of us are gathered and we ask the Father for anything in heaven, we've got it. Got any ideas? Jesus is talking about the context of church discipline here. The idea that the church is actually, actually has the authority to do this. I don't know if you've ever realized before that the church actually has the authority on earth to make judgments. And it is the most underestimated, powerful thing on earth. I remember underestimating the effects of age when I turned 30. I decided that I was going to train for a marathon. And so I, I got out the first day after making that decision, and I ran a couple of Ks. It was fine. I hadn't run in five years, but it was fine. I was quite athletic in my youth. And then I decided the next day I'd see if I could do 5K, and that was fine. Day three, I was running 10 kilometers. Day four, I ran 10 kilometers again, slightly faster. I thought, I've got this. This is easy. I can't believe that people have such problems. Day five, I did it again, 10K, even faster. Day six, I was glad I had my mobile phone because I needed to ring my wife because I could barely walk. <laughs> the effects of age had changed me and I underestimated it. We do this with the church. We underestimate its power all of the time. Jesus doesn't. What he's pointing out here is ultimately that when the church makes a decision, God will back that decision. As long as, a, as, a, as, as, long as it's a good decision, that decision will be backed by God. In fact, Paul actually quotes this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, If any of you has a dispute with another... Do not dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Now, there's a central word in between all of these things, and you don't need to know the Greek word or want to know the Greek word, but, but both in, in verse 1 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and in Matthew 18, 19, there's this idea of a judicial decision. The idea being that ultimately if there is a, a judicial decision made, that God is able to work it out that God is able to back it. It might seem like a difficult decision, but it doesn't belong to you. This is why we have the benefit of the church. This too is the context for the famous statement, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. He's talking about the process of deciding about sin. About throwing your weight behind, behind reconciliation and forgiveness. And so don't underestimate the church. 
Don't underestimate your power as a group, as a collective. No one person is able to do what the church can do. No one person is more important than any other member of the church or of the collective. The church, when it acts as one, as a, as a group of people that will work together, is extraordinarily powerful, has great authority. In fact, in the eyes of Jesus and in the eyes of Paul, the church has the greatest authority that any other group will ever have. You will judge the world. And then to ram it home, Jesus tells a parable. Peter, who's thankful for Peter, comes to Jesus and says, how many times shall I forgive? And he thinks he's generous when he says, shall I forgive seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. Recently, I saw, how much is seven times 70 or 77 times seven or uh, who knows? But just forgive. It's easier than math. And Jesus tells this story or this parable. He talks about a, a king who decides that he's going to settle an account with a servant. And it turns out that this servant has an incredible debt towards the king. The NIV says 10 bags of gold or 10,000 bags of gold. And he's, the servant is brought before the king and the king says, I'm going to sell you and your family into slavery in order that this debt would be paid back to me. And he begs and he says, no, please give me time and I will, I will bring you the money. I will get you the money. The king recognizes, he realizes that this is a bad debt. Nobody can pay back 10,000 bags of gold. And so he forgives the debt. And then ultimately, this man, he, it's, it's like he feels like he's been shamed. This is an honor-shame system after all. And he finds another servant. And he grabs him. And he says, you owe me money. A much, a much lesser amount. And ultimately, the servant does the exact same thing he does with his fellow servant. He says, I'll, I'll pay you back the hundred silver coins. I'll pay it back. Just give me a little time. And ultimately, the servant says, nope. Because of you, I've been shamed. As if that little amount of money could have helped him at all before the king, who he owed a debt that no one could pay. And so he throws him into jail. And the king hears about this because the fellow servants saw this and they saw the unrighteousness of the act. How could someone who has been forgiven so much not forgive his fellow servant who had very, who had very little in the way of debt in comparison? That's so unrighteous. I just want to stop for a moment and go back to the idea of church discipline. It seems so harsh to say to a person, sorry, we don't see the fruits of repentance within you. We don't think that you should have access to the communion table with us. We don't think that you're, that you're part of the church. It seems harsh. But the servants don't think that it's harsh what happens to this man in the parable? 
They recognize that it's a just action for the consequences of his sin. He who was forgiven so much should have been willing to pass that, that forgiveness onto his fellow servant. He doesn't recognize, this man does not recognize the generous gesture from the king. And so when the king hears about this, he throws him into jail. And he says, because he says, you should have had mercy. You should have extended the same grace that I gave to you. And he throws him into jail and to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Who knows that a man who owes this much has very little prospect of ever paying back a penny while he's in jail. And that's the point. The point ultimately of this story is that this man's plight was tragic because he did not recognize the generous gesture of the king. And then Jesus says perhaps the most difficult thing of all. This is how my father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers or sisters from your heart. That's a difficult thing to bear. And amongst interpretations, it should be pointed out that we've just been looking at a parable. And it's dangerous to make direct correlations between what goes on in a parable and what actually goes on in the merciful heart of God. And yet, I don't want to take away the sting. Now, is Jesus saying that if you refuse to forgive, that you will be thrown into hell and tortured for eternity? That if you refuse to forgive, every, or every time you refuse to forgive, you will lose your salvation? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because he says a similar thing in Matthew 6, 14 and 15 in the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's a similar statement. And yet, Jesus is still able to call the people that he's talking to the children of God. That he's able to say these are that, that he is your father. I think we make too little of temporal judgment on earth. Who's ever felt the withdrawal of the presence of God in their life? Who's ever known what it is to go to God in prayer and feel like there is a distance between you and him? I don't think that we think enough about 1 Corinthians 11 and about the concept of, of what it is to, to truly be, be punished by God for taking of communion in an unworthy manner. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul tells you to check yourself, to make a, a self-assessment, what he's just been talking about is treating other people in the church with indifference. He says, because of this, some of you are sick and some have even died. And so we don't have to be talking about the idea that, that every time you refuse to forgive a person, you lose your salvation. Rather, Hebrews 6, 12, 6 says, because of the discipline of the Lord, He shows that He loves us. 
And he chastens everyone that he accepts as his son, as his, as his children. The Lord really will discipline us. And so that, at the very least, is what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 18.35. Forgiveness is such an important issue. The relationship on the horizontal between our fellow man is so important that unless you get that right, then it will affect your relationship with God. The discipline that you experience from God will be perhaps catastrophic. Perhaps even to a point where it will seem like God is distant from you. And for a Christian, for one who loves God, for the one who loves Christ, for the one who values the ministry and the help of the Holy Spirit, is that something that you're prepared to lose? Now, God is more merciful to us than we ever deserve. That's actually the point of the story. That God forgives us when we are not worthy of forgiveness. That God will, will cover over. He is forbearing our sin until we come to him in repentance. But he doesn't turn a blind eye. If you refuse to forgive those who sin against you, you are displaying the exact same heart as the man who wanted to throw his fellow servant in jail for the sin that he had just been forgiven of. You are yet to grapple with the, 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 the magnitude of the forgiveness that God has given you. Look to Christ. God was the initiator of your forgiveness. He didn't wait for you. He took the first steps in sending Christ to make atonement at one meant for our sins not because we were worthy but because he loved us even in spite of our unworthiness if ever you feel that tinge of anger of bitterness of brokenness of relationship remember that moment Remember the incredible joy of forgiveness that you experienced when you first felt the love of God in your heart. And then even though that person who sinned against you is not worthy of your grace and your mercy, even though they are not worthy of you going to them and seeking reconciliation, remember that you were not worthy of God either. And none of us are worthy of one another's grace and mercy. But we are never worthy of the grace and mercy of God. Let that be your motivation. Let that be your foundation. And in doing so, you recognize and you remember all that God has done for you. Lastly, if you're the church, don't despise your duty. You have a role to play in making sure that there is actual and genuine reconciliation between broken parties. As a collective of people, as an ecclesia, as an assembly, you have great authority. You will one day judge the world with Jesus.
You have the authority to do this. You have the ability to do this, to seek reconciliation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you loved us first and that you sent your son to die for us in order that we could have reconciliation with you, that we could be atoned for. Lord, may this be ever-present in our minds when people sin against us. May we be the first people to go out and seek forgiveness. May we be among those who are the first to go out and seek reconciliation. Help us, Lord, to do this difficult task because often it is hard. But help us as well as, as leaders and as, and as church members to play our part in this process, to do it well. And Lord, we always require your help. And so we pray that the Spirit would be with us and guiding us whenever this is possible. But Lord, we lift up praise to your name. Amen.